widely considered the first detective story ever written, or at least modern detective story in 1841. Let's talk The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe today. Eat your heart out, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because when we talk about the modern classic, like of like how mystery works, uh, the, the, you could see the DNA here, right? In terms of some of the clues, in terms of how we deduce basically, well, if this is true, then this must be true. And by eliminating these things that must be false, that leads us to this conclusion. Now, Poe obviously got a lot of recognition when this first came out, right? It was viewed as brilliant. It was viewed as one of those revolutions, which, you know, okay, that's fair. You invent kind of or, or standardize like a form of writing. Yeah, you should get some praise. But it's kind of interesting the way that he goes about this one, at least, right? Because we've read two stories tonight. We're sitting down to record two stories. Both of them kind of have this wrapper of an intro, right? Like you have this philosophical intro of, of, of analytical reasoning. You know, how did you take this in the beginning? I was confused at first. <laughs> That's, I'll be honest. But I like how he sets up the story with maybe how to think about the story itself, which is very unique because I can't think of time before that an author specifically called out what you and I like to do. And I thought that was genius because it gave, it gave me some idea of how to proceed. It may have tainted what I was planning on doing, but I think it was for the best because it put me inside the mind of almost like a detective. Because I mean, that's kind of what we are as we analyze all these stories and talk about them is we get a story, we analyze it, detect it, see what little nuggets we can deduce, and then we have a conversation to come to a conclusion, the same as that happens in the story. And I thought that was a lot of fun and unique. Yeah. Now, I think when we look at this intro, he gives you some zingers of quotes, which, which I think are fantastic, right? We have... What is only complex is mistaken, a not unusual error, for what is profound. And what advantages are obtained by either party are obtained by superior acumen. Right. So he's kind of setting up this idea that he's going to say, you need to pay attention. And he's not saying that he's going to lead you to the logical, obvious conclusion. Right. And I think that might throw some people who read this story. But if we if we dig deeper into this intro, even like the epigraph by Sir Thomas Brown, where it says, what song the siren sang or what name Achilles assumed when he hid himself among women, although puzzling questions are not beyond all conjecture. Right. Which is funny because you and I are reading yeah. Ulysses right now. Right. We know the sirens or what, you know, lured, you know, the, the, the crew in. We know that Achilles uh, kind of hid with the women to well, was placed there so that he didn't have to go to war and die for, like, for the prophecy. Right. So, like, what name did he use? Like, what, what song did they sing? Well, we don't know. We, we, they plugged their ears. These are very obscure questions with answers that very few, if anybody knows. But they are known. They can be figured out. And that, that's kind of the clue of... This story you're about to read, this Murders in the Room Org, it's not obvious. Not many people know the answer, but it can be figured out is kind of what he's warning you about. And I think that's the great gift of this specific story is he created a genre, as you said, of storytelling in general. Think of all of, you know, again, 
Sherlock Holmes obviously comes to mind right off the bat of you know how a detective would work. But think of all the modern cop shows, buddy shows, buddy cop things, movies, all of those comic book stories, other, you know, uh, Michael Crichton. I mean, these stories take inspiration from this and the way that you can set up a story and say, this might be the answer. I'm going to give you maybe a answer or maybe I'll leave it open ended. And I, I think that that is amazing, even though, you know, I'm the guy that I like the definitive answer. It's also sometimes good to be frustrated because it makes you appreciate the times that you are maybe given the answer directly out. So it, it, it gives you a variety. And I love that. The influence runs deep and far to the point where you and I have even talked about this structure with Star Wars. You and I read Thrawn. And if you remember the first, well, the, the relaunch of Thrawn, the new Del Rey versions, you had Thrawn was the smartest guy in the room, which is our Dupont in this, Auguste Dupont in this story. And how do you write someone smarter than you? And you, you have to know the answer, but the problem is that he just tells you the answer. He can come off as smug. He can come off as arrogant. So you have to introduce almost that filter, right? You, the reader, are also having to be coached along and also discovering what Dupont already knows, right? So that's why we are the unnamed narrator, who's kind of the, I don't want to say dunce, but he's hes the average intellect person. He's hes the reader he's in this situation. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's us, me. Right? <laughs> yeah. And it's in the same way that the smartest person in the room knows the answer and says, well, if this is true, what can't be true? That gives you, the reader, the chance to start playing along of like, oh, you're right. Like, well, if the door was locked and the key was inside... He had to go out some other way, right? Well, the chimney was blocked. <laughs> and that's how we get to the window part of the story too, right? So it's kind of like by taking away these options and really taking time to digest it, I think it makes it more rewarding that even though the smartest guy in the room can tell us it, by discovering it with the unnamed narrator, the, the average intellect person, the delay and time for discovery, I think makes it rewarding and also furthers Dupont's status as the smartest guy in the room. It also allows us as the reader to feel like that we have progressed in our analytical abilities, that Dupont is, he's our guide, he's our teacher. And if he does just give us the answer, then yeah, he seems arrogant. But if he can help lead us to the answer, then it doesn't feel as condescending, which is wonderful. No, that That's I think one of the the genius parts of this story is, yeah, it, you 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 see Thrawn as the bad guy, you know, because he just he does come off as kind of a jerk, smartest guy in the room. Sometimes you don't like him, right? Because you want to be him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's jump into the story, right? So we are the unnamed narrator. We're in Paris, right? We go to meet our friend Dupont after this, you know, treatisey on analytical reason reasoning, warning us that hey. It's, it's It can be figured out, but just be prepared, right? And we find about these gruesome murders. And that happened in the room org, right? And we go to visit this place, which apparently you just get to come in and check things out. <laughs> and the murders are brutal, right? The daughter oh, yeah. literally like, you know, parts of her flesh kind of scraped off. She shoved up the chimney. Stuffed up the chimney, first. yeah. You have the the mom, not only had her neck, neck slit, it was cut off, mm. Right. Yeah. Oh. Sorry. And he he really mm. doesn't soften the punches. Like he, he, yeah, he really makes back. it. <laughs> he, he makes it gruesome, and it's a good scary read, October ish gruesome type read, right? But 
what I like about him is while telling the story and while it's engaging, he gives you all these fun little hints, right? You've got that, that almost that comical interview with everyone where they're like, okay, we opened up the door. It was a bayonet. No, it was a crowbar. Like, like we can't even decide on how we opened it. Right. But we all heard him speak uh, French. No, it was not French. It was, it was Dutch. No, it was not Dutch. It was, and, and, and they start to go back and forth and you're like, wow, they can't agree on the language. Right. And what kind of can go over some people's heads is while well, they all described it as shrilly as a shriek that you start to realize like, oh, I do need to pay attention to some small specifics of what's common and throw out the stuff that isn't needed. And, and I, I like those types of hints that he gives you along the way. Now, going back to the beginning, do you think that the analogical brain is prepared to do that so quick? Because picking out those specific details may be difficult, at least it was for me. Oh, 100%. Right. And that's, I think, because when you compare this along with, if you remember the purloined letter, Poe sometimes took these jabs at, at traditional views of intelligence, right? Chess players are so smart, right? They can figure out the answers, right? The police are so smart. They solve these murders. But he points out that, that chess, that police, this analytical approach to life of following the most predictable or what you, what, what feels like the most right answer. Like, so for example, in this story, you had all this money lying around, right? And the last person to visit this, this mother and daughter combo was the, the, the banker. I think it was the guy that got arrested essentially because he was the last one to see them alive. He has an interest in money in a sense, even though the money was all left untouched, we're going to shove that under the rug, but you know we don't know what else to go on, so we're going to go with him. And logically, it would make sense to interrogate this guy, right? But that doesn't mean he's guilty. That doesn't mean that there's not other unlikely answers out there. We just need to find the ways to get to those answers, right? And I think, I mean, did you notice many of the clues that, that Poe gave us to get to that type of an answer? The second time through, sure. And I think that was the problem is, for me personally is I'm not creative enough like that. And that's one of the things that Poe pokes fun of in the story is that the police are just so rigid that, yeah, they may be analytical, but they're not creative in their thinking of what could it possibly be. And that's me personally as well. Now, my second pass through, because I did read this twice, then uh, I, I started to pick up on some of those little subtle nuances. And that's where I started having those aha moments. And it's like, oh, he was foreshadowing it here. Oh, he was leading me down this path had I paid attention of course, it you know hindsight's twenty twenty, so it's a lot easier the second path through. But you know, if you are you know detail oriented enough, you know, and have that imagination, I, I think that yeah, it, it is there. Well, it's not even the imagination; it's it's the ability to let go of how we almost live every day. We we live in a very rational world. We think there's answers to everything. We think everything happens for a purpose. But we're almost asking, what if there is an an improbable but irrational answer to this problem, right? Because just because it's irrational doesn't mean that it's impossible. Like it, it can be done, right? And to pick on one of the examples, I wrote down this quote. It said, in front of the fireplace, there was some long gray hair, also bloody. It seemed to have been pulled from a human head. And the first pass through on this, right, seemed to be pulled from a human head. Okay, what do you mean by seemed? Since 
since we assume seemed applies to the action of pulling, probably on our first pass, we see, oh, okay, well, maybe it wasn't pulled out. Maybe it was cut off. Maybe it got caught in something and was yanked out or something like that. Like you start thinking down that path because that's rational, right? But that doesn't mean that it is the, the always the, the, the most, the answer that did happen, right? There are irrational things because what you can do is you can say when you read it the second time th through and you realize the murderer was not human. Read that sentence again. In front of the fireplace, there was some long gray hair, also bloody. It seemed to have been pulled from a human head, meaning, oh, maybe it wasn't pulled from a human head. Maybe it was the orangutan's uh, hair, essentially. <laughs> right? Spoilers. Those, those, <laughs> those aren't things you jump to natural conclusions of, right? It's very irrational that a orangutan would just climb into a window and do these sorts of things, but not impossible. Right. And like, I think that's kind of Poe's main thrust in this story, essentially. And those are the layers upon layers that make this story so incredible is word structure, sentence structure and story structure all together playing its little game with you. Because when you as you said, you read that sentence, you logically put which two words you think that are are going together. And it's like, oh, it's not seemed pulled. It's seemed human. So you, you've got to, you got to look at your sentence structure differently and you even have to analyze how are you p connecting the pieces in this puzzle because you might have to put two pieces together that don't seem like that they fit, but they will eventually. Yeah. And he, his clues are so subtle and, and I think sometimes require a second pass, like particularly when they're Latin. <laughs> uh, there, there's that phrase where he, I don't even want to try to pronounce it, but the one that's like perdite and antiquum. But it basically translates to the first letter lost its ancient sound. So you know how like things change over time, right? Like we might change like the way pneumonia we things. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then in this story, he chooses a very archaic way to spell orangutan, right? Like it's the orang utang or whatever. Like it gives it this very kind of like palindronic look almost in a sense. I know it's not, but it, but it it gives it like a mirrored look of its sense too, and. I didn't have a lot of personal draw to this point, but when you look at like some some of like the the scholarly articles and even on like on Wikipedia, if it makes it onto Wikipedia, you know people are going to talk about it. But but Poe sometimes has like that brain versus brawn conversation. I didn't love that part of the conversation because for me, with the sailor doing everything from a brawn perspective, like so coming to the end of the story, right? The sailor uh, lost the orangutan when it was shaving <laughs> and was chasing it down the street <laughs> and, for being oh, such a horror story it's hilarious <laughs> yeah like it just it takes a really big improbable but possible cause turn right yeah but he does everything physically in terms of the shaving trying to stop him whip the orangutan chasing it down climbing up this window escaping through the window He's the physicality of the story, if that's one piece. And the other part of it is the brawn, the intelligence, which is Dupont. He didn't actually see it happen. He didn't actually witness or hear any of it. He can deduce and get to the improbable but possible cause through his intellect, right? And that's not the same thing as analysis, like chess players being able to say, here's the most likely answer you got to look at the unlikely answers and chase down those things too, which I think is, it's an interesting motif or point to the story, even though I know some people might be like, orangutan, where did that come from? Why didn't he plant that earlier in the story type of question? I can feel like it's almost a cheat 
uh, you know, there it's a big juxtaposition here of that takes, you know, a left turn out of nowhere. You weren't expecting it if you hadn't picked up on all those subtle clues, which I didn't. And I was, you know, and I even had to look it up because of the weird spelling. And I was like, oh, okay, this is all falling into place now. And again, having those puzzle pieces in certain order, now it makes sense. And I think that as a modern reader, you know, you might feel like you're being, you know, a little bit duped. Uh, but again, this is like the first story of its kind. And I think that if you look at it from that perspective, you will appreciate that much more. And it's, it's, it's just a fun ride. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like, he tells you it's improbable possible, right? If you were to rewrite this by modern standards, wouldn't you, when he's looking at the Gazette for the room orders, the rumor, uh, morgue murders, wouldn't you also at that point have pointed out that they read an article about an escaped orangutan or something about the French nod or something like that? You'd hear more hints up front, I think, if you were to do it in a more modern modern way of approaching the story to give the reader the chance to better come to that conclusion. I think you would have to take out all the analytical parts at the beginning, though. And just let them go on their own. I, I think that since you gave him a roadmap at the beginning, I think you're he's expecting you to do better. <laughs> Dupont and Poe. <laughs> Man, I, that's like my favorite part of the story. Don't take that out. And you know, like I love those stories that set you up like that. I don't know. It's it worked for me. Let me know in the comments down below how you guys felt about that analytical intro. Did it throw you off as well? If you're looking for other talks on Edgar Allan Poe, I'm going to leave a link to playlist down below where we've been going through, I don't know, we're, we're probably over at least a dozen Edgar oh, Allan yeah. Poe stories. We'd love for you guys to check it out. Let us know what other Poe stories you think we should check out next. My name has been Una. Thank you for spending time with us today. Peace. Peace.